Well, when you find yourself in some kind of trouble, and we all do, difficulty, what's kind of your go-to, go-to reaction? For some, maybe it's panic. <laughs> maybe it depends on the severity of the trouble that you find yourself in. Maybe some of us, we, we look for someone to blame. So anything that goes wrong, we're immediately trying to put the finger on somebody, like somebody must have done something wrong here. Many of us, we Google the problem, and there's almost no problem we can't find a way to put a little search query in and try to get some help. Um, maybe you phone a friend, talk to mom or dad or a sibling or neighbor or someone that you, you've benefited from their counsel to help in the past. Maybe, you, maybe you're a fixer. You kind of want to immediately start carefully analyzing the situation and coming up with kind of a step-by-step plan of how you're going to fix this problem. How you're going to deal with it. Maybe you just kind of eat ice cream and binge watch TV. <laughs> just hope that it kind of dies down or wait till it goes away. Um, what about as a church? I mean, the corporate body. What are, what are our, some of our go-to reactions when trouble comes? We probably have versions of every one of those. Uh, I don't know what the version of eating ice cream and watching Netflix is for a church body, but... Um, maybe, maybe, maybe we form a committee and that's kind of our first response. But we have a little snapshot of, of the early life of the church here in Acts chapter 4. And so this is for the very first time, they're facing a really serious, legitimate threat. Um, direct opposition here. And, and so they definitely, this is not going to be the last time because we're going to see this suffering and opposition and hostility throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see this over and over again. But what's their go-to reaction? How do they respond when trouble comes? Well, we know because Marty just read it. They pray. They pray. It's the first recorded prayer in the book of Acts, and it's the longest recorded prayer in the book of Acts. And they don't, as we notice, they don't pray for escape. They don't beg God to make it stop. What do they do? They plead, plead with the Lord for boldness. For boldness, to keep on speaking of Christ in the midst of opposition. That's the prayer. And so if there's kind of one idea over this passage this morning, it's this. It's, it's we can have courage in the midst of opposition. And here's the big idea. Through what God provides. We can have courage in the midst of opposition through what God provides. And that's going to be our focus. This isn't just a how to deal with trouble in your life. And, you know, do this, do this, do this. No, it's. It's what does God provide so that we can, we can face opposition. Opposition to the gospel even with, with courage, with boldness. That's what we're going to see in our passage. So the scene, you remember this impromptu prayer meeting that we just read about a moment ago. It came out of what started back in chapter 3. So a couple weeks ago, Eric was here. So remember, Peter and John, they're on their way into the temple to pray. And, and they, they come upon this crippled man who's asking for money. Remember Peter... He says, hey, we don't have silver, we don't have gold, but what we have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And, and, and Peter helps this guy up, and this man who's been lame for 40 years since birth, he has no muscle tone at all, he stands up and he walks and he leaps while he's praising God. And, and this is just an incredible scene. And so all the people there, they, they see this and they're astounded by what they've what they've just witnessed and how in the world did this happen? And, 
So Peter makes it clear it has nothing to do with, remember, their own power or piety. That's not what the explanation is. It's the name of Jesus Christ that has power. And so Peter uses this opportunity to preach the gospel again and 2,000 more people uh, come to faith in Christ. Those mikvahs are probably used again, more baptisms. And so well, the religious establishment, you remember there, the text says they were greatly annoyed by all of this. And so remember, it's just been a couple months since the whole city of Jerusalem was in this uproar after the arrest and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they want to make sure the name of Jesus doesn't stir up people in Jerusalem anymore. And so they arrest Peter and John. They arrest them and they end up spending a night in the slammer, which is really more like a cave or a, a dungeon. I, I had photos. They didn't make it across. So you can be, maybe you can be glad for that. I don't know. Uh, but we, one of the places we visited was St. Peter's Church. This is on, on Mount Zion. So part of within the city walls of Jerusalem. Temples on Mount Moriah. It's, uh, it's Caiaphas's, Caiaphas's house was on Mount Zion. This is where Jesus was when he was arrested on the night of his betrayal. They took him there to Caiaphas's house. He spent the night there in, in this dungeon, essentially. And so the jail, as it were, was basically a cave underground. And there was a hole that they would lower, lower people through that hole down into this dungeon. That's where Christ spent the night. It's called St. Peter's Church because that's where Remember Peter in the courtyard of Caiaphas's house. That's where he denied the Lord three times and before the rooster crowed, remember? And there's actually a rooster on top of this church and on the doors as you go in. Uh, what a great reminder, you know? Um, and so this is, but, but you think about it. Back then, Peter denied knowing Christ while Jesus was down in that dungeon. And it's very likely now that Peter is probably in the same dungeon because he's boldly preached Christ. That's, that's striking. And so what a, what a difference the resurrection makes. What a difference the Holy Spirit in Peter makes. And so the next morning, remember, Peter and John, they're brought before the religious authorities, the Jewish authorities. They want to know how he healed this man who's been crippled since birth. Peter again uses the opportunity to tell them about Jesus, whom they crucified, and, and God raised him from the dead. Verse 13 of chapter 4, when they saw the boldness, there's that word, the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so they, they cannot deny that this incredible miracle has taken place, but they will not allow this miracle to become some platform for celebrating and talking about and making much and lifting up this name of Jesus in Jerusalem. They're not going to let that happen. And so they command they command Peter and John, you cannot speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And so verse 19, Peter and John answer, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. So at this point, they're just kind of trying to defuse the situation. They threaten them again, and then they let them go for now. And so that brings us to our passage here in verse 23. And so what will, what will the response of the early church be to this opposition, to this very direct and very serious threat? What's it going to be? Well, you could think. Now, we just read, so we know what it is. But you could imagine how they might reason. If we were in their shoes and if we didn't see the end from the beginning, maybe it's time to go back home for a little while. Just go back to Galilee. It's nice up there. We have businesses there. We have family there. We can kind of let things simmer down. 
It'll, and then we can come back, maybe in a couple weeks. But we have families. We have children to think about. We have businesses that, 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 that need attended to. And so let's, let's come back. Maybe that would be, maybe did that thought cross their mind? Or maybe we need to implement better security measures. From now on, Peter and John won't ever go out at the same time to the same place. We can't lose them both at the same time again. Maybe we need a fleet of you know, armored Escalades to go with them wherever they go or whatever their version was. Maybe a security detail. Maybe, maybe we need to start a letter writing campaign and, and, and to the authorities and get some help, something like that. Or maybe we just need to rethink our messaging. Maybe, maybe clearly this you killed Christ and you need to repent because of it is maybe this isn't, isn't working so well and we need to tone things down. I, what, how would you respond? What would your reflex be in the face of danger like this? These really legitimate threats from these very powerful people. It's the same people who were instrumental in having Christ crucified just weeks earlier. Well, we read what they do, and this is what's recorded. So first, Peter and John, they run straight to these other, these other disciples that are gathered together, probably in a house, maybe in that same upper room. Second, they, as a group, they pray. And then third, we see God responds to their prayer in a very big and dramatic way. And, and so taken together, again, what I want to see is we can see what God provides provides for us to find courage in the midst of opposition. What, what does he provide? And so most of this will take from that prayer, but also from the entire passage. So quickly, and then we're going to come and meet at the table and rejoice in Christ together and what he's provided through his sufferings in our place. And so first thing, God provides his people. He provides his people that, that we can run to. You see this in verse 23, when they, when Peter and John were released, they went to their friends, that's what the ESV says, and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. So they, they went to their friends. It's literally their own. Their own. That little, that expression, it's typically used of, of your family, your, your clan, you know, my people. These are my people. But here it's used in reference to this group of disciples, to the church, to the family of faith, to the, to the people of God. They went out and found their people. Their friends, the ones to whom, with whom they belong together. This is where they found belonging. I just say, what a gift from God to us is the church, brothers and sisters. And I'll just personally, anecdotally, when I've been away for the last three weeks, and it is, it is a reminder of the sweetness of that gift. And it's not something I take for granted when I come back and I see your faces coming into this room. It's, it's, it's a thrill and it's, I'm grateful for that. And even the ways we're connect while, while I'm away and praying for one another. We, we have this community of supportive friends. It's not a bad translation. Friends. Now, we don't think enough. I know the youth are going to be talking about friendship and a biblical theology of friendship and, and what that means this, this, this spring. But that's something for us to consider. I hope that that's your experience in the church, in this church. That this is, this is where your deepest bonds of friendship they form and they flourish in the church this is the way it's supposed to be these are our people these are our these are our own where, where are we going to go to and and so within this within this local congregation we're a, we're a mixed group aren't we we come from different backgrounds we look differently we think differently we have different interests and and careers and different education levels and different you know wealth differences and opinions on things but there are deep bonds. 
you know, we think of our people, sometimes when we hear that in the culture, we tend to be people that are, are like me in so many important categories. In the church, it's the bonds are there in Christ. All kinds of diversity within that. But these are the people we run to when we are in trouble. It's beautiful evidence. This is beautiful evidence of God's gracious provision to us. Do you see the church that way? This is part of what God has provided to us when there's opposition, when there's threats, when there's trouble. This is people. We can run, run to them. God has provided family, friends, our own in the church. And so when we go to the picnic in the park today and we sit out there together and we enjoy talking and being with one another, this is, this is the goodness of that. Friends. Um, so we're going to face opposition. We're going to face threats. We, we, <coughs> but we get to face it together. We're not alone. Um, I know in the 90s, uh, when I was growing up as a new believer, I, I feel like a lot of the emphasis was on in Christian music and in, in um, you know, books and those kinds of things that was geared towards youth. It was standing alone for Christ. And, there was, and, and I think it was well intended, and they're trying to emphasize courage and boldness, but I think, you know, this was like the Al Denson, some of you remember this, will you be the one, and you know, like this is just the one, and so the, all the videos, the music videos, like one person in the school, you know, he's got nobody else at home, nobody else in this life other than, you know, he's standing alone for Christ. I just say the reality, though, is God has provided a community, so we stand together. We, we have support. I mean, sometimes we're physically alone, and so I think some of that's being communicated there. And when we are, though, we remember ultimately we're not alone. We pray. We, we, we think of our brothers and sisters in North Africa that we've been praying for. and A brother that's in jail, has been in jail for so long and is now released. But he was not alone. They're praying. There's support. There's love. There's care around the globe. And, this is, and he was leaning on that, no doubt, through that time. It's a gift. This is one of God's provisions. His church. Second, all right, I can clearly tell we're not going to make it through all seven of these ways that the Lord has provided. That's okay. I'm trying to like keep my voice in this range because I'm going to lose it by the end if I don't. So bear with me. I'm a little rusty after being off for three weeks too. God provides, secondly, His throne. His throne. And what I mean is He provides His throne to which we have access to Him through prayer. He provides His throne. So verse 24, so... They go, hear the report. He goes to his own. They go to their own. And when they heard it, when they heard the report, what did they do? They lifted their voices together to God. Prayer for them, it wasn't the last resort. It was this, this first response. God, God, forgive us for the times when that's not the case for us. And I'll tell you, as I've been studying this even this week, I, I've been convicted that this is, there's been a few times this week where things have come up and that's not been my first response to pray. And and this is it. We, we we need to this needs to be our, our kind of reaction. And so and notice the emphasis on their unity as they pray. They lifted their voices together. It's literally they lifted their voice singular together. There's one voice, and they they, they they together they've heard this report and their hearts have been stirred by what they've heard from Peter and John about these threats from these from these leaders, and now there's this incredible sense of oneness as they call upon the Lord. Together, one voice. And it's one of the most dramatic, powerful prayers that's recorded in the New Testament, without doubt. And it begins by addressing God, Sovereign Lord. The Greek word is despotos. Despotos. 
Oh, despotos. You can hear from that Greek word, we get our English word despot. Despot. I don't know about you, but I don't think of, I don't hear, I've never heard the word despot used in a positive way. Putin is such a loving despot. Of course, we we, we don't want to read our 21st century readings and meanings back into the first century. (coughs) But this is a word used several times in the New Testament to describe Jesus and the Father. And the idea is absolute ruler, a, a ruler of unchallengeable power. We sang just a moment ago, on the throne, victorious, glorious, sovereign over all. Oh, despotos. That's what he's saying. You can see how that word does evolve into some kind of you know, despotic, uh, authoritarian dictator. But it's, it's not random that they address God as sovereign Lord. And you notice creation. He's the creator of everything. These human authorities, these religious leaders and, uh, of these Jewish authorities, they're trying to flex their muscles. They're trying to exert their power to, to, to squash the name of Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ. But the church is confessing, hey, you are the one who is sovereign over all. You are the ruler. You're, there's no limit to your jurisdiction. You're the despotos. And you have no rivals. I was thinking of one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 46. The Lord has used that multiple times in my life and, and just ministered to my soul in times of sorrow. But Psalm 46, and verse 10 in particular, we, we know these words. Be still and what? Know that I am God. That's right. This is one of those verses. I do get a little ticked off at what the Christian subculture has done to it. Because oftentimes we see those words on a coffee mug or on a little refrigerator magnet, a little mountain stream behind it. Be still and know that I'm God. And, but, but this verse, it's not about this little moment of serenity when you're sitting on the porch in the morning with your little cup of coffee, sipping that, looking at the sunrise and Keith and Kristen Getty in the background, that kind of thing. This isn't it. The psalm is about confessing in the worst moments of your pain and difficulty and, and threats on your life and you're being opposed. This is confessing, be still and know that I am God. And then the verse goes on, and I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. You are God and you will exalt your name on the earth. And by faith, I know that this disaster, this pain, this difficulty that we're walking through, this loss, this problem, these threats on my life, this hostility that's coming at your people, they're somehow going to contribute to your agenda of being exalted among the nations. So be still, heart. Oh, despotos. We can have courage in the midst of opposition through what God provides. And God has provided access to Himself through prayer. He's provided access to His throne where He reigns and He rules as sovereign Lord and Creator of all. What encouragement. What else does God provide? He provides His Word. Now again, this is now they're praying and so they're praying and they're addressing God as the sovereign one, the creator of all. And then they turn and, and they, they start forming words to pray in light of this hostility. As they're doing that, their minds go to Scripture, particularly Psalm 2. And so God has given us His Word, which gives us this lens through which we can rightly see hostility. And so this prophetic 
coronation psalm, Psalm 2, a psalm they would have, have been very mindful of. It begins by talking about humanity's futile attempts to overthrow God's authority, to oppose God's chosen Messiah King. And so the sovereign Lord and the Creator to whom they're praying is the one, verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. Just picture like this, you know, United Nations meeting with all of the presidents and 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 prime ministers and and kings strategizing how they're going to get rid of God. That's kind of the image. And so, but again, they they just mentioned the first two verses of Psalm two in their prayer. But believe me, they had the whole psalm in mind. It's, it's like when we listen to you know you can hear the first couple notes of a song and you're like ah I know the song I'm I know what's coming. This is it. So. How does God respond in that psalm? Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. When God laughs, brothers and sisters, we know it's not funny. It is, it, he, he, God is not amused by humanity's attempts to get rid of Him and His chosen one. In verse 6, God, God says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill, saying it's as good as done. God, you can't stop God's plans. And then the psalm ends, Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So they're, they're seeing their situation. They're seeing this hostility through the lens of Scripture. And, and as they're praying using Psalm 2, they connect that song to the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 27 goes on. Back to Acts 4. For truly, for truly, this is... There, this is the, those words are making the connection. This is Jesus. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So individuals and corporately, Jews and Gentiles, all of these leaders, their, their sinful humanity is plotted to execute Jesus, God's anointed Messiah. That's what he's saying. But notice what verse 28 says. Or better yet, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews, they gathered to, together to do whatever they wanted to do to Jesus. What does it say? They gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Listen, the cross, as you've said, it's not, it was not some unfortunate ending to an otherwise wonderful rabbinic ministry of teaching. The cross was about God's predetermined plan for our salvation to be fully accomplished. God who made everything in the world, He made, he made us, and, and yet we rebelled against Him. We, we rejected His rule. We rejected His authority. We rejected His laws. And we fell. We sinned. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell, and we and everybody since we are guilty in them. And we're guilty in our lives and our expressions. Every one of us, everyone who's had kids or been around kids, you know, you know how to be trained to be sinners. We're all born sinners. And so Christ came as the Father's plan, his predetermined plan to send his own son to come and to live on this earth and to perfectly obey God's law, to fulfill all righteousness, to do everything 
perfectly, never sinned. And yet to go and suffer on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. He didn't die for his own wrongdoing. He died for our wrongdoing. And the punishment that he bore wasn't just the punishment of Rome. It was the punishment of God's wrath for our sins. So when Jesus died on the cross, there were these three hours of darkness that descended. And in those three hours, Jesus absorbed into his holy soul hell itself in concentrated form in our place. He took our sin. He paid the punishment. The perfect Lamb of God slain in our place. But, and he was buried, and yet he didn't stay dead. God raised him from the dead, guaranteeing that all who look to the Son will find life in his name. We don't, so our response is to embrace the Son as the Psalm, uh, as, as Psalm 2 says, kiss the Son. Embrace him, believe in the Son, look to the Son. That's where you find life. It's not, it's not by earning, it's not by being good enough, it's not by cleaning up your act, it's by saying, I'm a sinner, I'm filthy, I'm guilty. I need, I need goodness, I need righteousness, I need obedience that's outside of myself, and I look to Jesus who provided that for me and who paid the penalty for my sin. We look to him and we're saved. And this is, this is all, this is what, as they're looking at Psalm 2 and as they're praying and as they're considering, this is your father, this is your predetermined plan. This is what you've accomplished in Christ's death. There was no accident. There was no chaos. There was just as much design and order in the chaos of the cross as there was in the pristine garden before the fall. God was in charge. And so remember, all right, that said, what prompts them to pray is their suffering though, right? They're threats made against Peter and John and the rest. It's opposition they're facing, but their, their minds go to Psalm 2 as they talk about opposition that Christ faced. And how it fits within God's purposes. They understood that threats against them were really opposition to Christ. It was this demonstration of that. I'll just say, remembering that, remembering the cross, it helps free us from when we're opposed, when we experience hostility, when we're threatened. It, it frees us from vengeful, brooding, retaliatory thoughts. It frees us from fighting threats with threats and slander with slander and and violence with violence. God has provided, and this is the big idea here. God, what God has God provided? He's provided His Word that rightly helps us to see the hostility that we face. I mean, we don't have time to linger here, but we, we need to think biblically about opposition in our lives. We shouldn't be surprised by it. Jesus told us we, did, we should expect it. We shouldn't think that it's new. It goes all the way back to Genesis. The devil himself. It, we shouldn't think it's simply a social human problem. This is... It's that there are spiritual forces at work. We, we shouldn't take it personally. It's ultimately directed to Christ. We shouldn't think it will last forever. It's going to come to an end. Psalm 2 makes that abundantly clear. We shouldn't think that we're alone without resources that we need from God. He's provided what we need to endure. So we, ha we can have courage in the, in the midst of opposition to what God provides. He provides His people that we can run to. He provides His throne that we have access to through prayer, he provides his word, which allows us to understand opposition rightly. And fourth, he provides his justice. His justice. And this all-seeing eye of justice that no one can escape. So in verse 29, there's this pivot in the prayer. And so verse 29, and now, Lord. So you see that shift. He's now moving to this plea that he's going to make to God. 
in light of who You are, in light of what You've spoken, this is what we're asking, Lord. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Again, read that in light of Psalm 2. The Lord who is in heaven and He laughs, who scoffs at those who oppose Him. In other words, He's saying, Lord, You can handle these guys. This is in Your wheelhouse. He's saying, Lord, just look upon their threats. Take this. They're, they're asking God to simply take notice of their dire situation. They don't pray explicitly for their opponents to be uh, you know, exterminated, crushed. They don't ask to be spared from their opposition. The, again, these are not idle threats either. In just a few chapters, we're going to see them carry out these threats. By the time we get to chapter 7, Stephen's going to be stoned to death for preaching that Christ rose from the dead. And in chapter 12, we'll see that Herod executed James, the brother of John. Uh, he arrested Peter, planning to put him to death after the Passover. But the church prayed. The Lord delivered them. But, they, but these religious leaders, they mean business. These are not idle threats. They, 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 when they warn them not to speak in the name of Christ, that's, that's serious. But the church responds by saying, Lord, look upon their threats. We're leaving your enemies to you, Lord. And Jesus, Jesus modeled this in His own suffering, didn't He? 1 Peter 2.23, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. That's what we see. We look upon their threats. We, we, God has given us this, His justice, this all-seeing eye of justice. Nothing escapes His notice. We don't, have to, we don't have to be God's hitman here. He's, he's, gonna, he's going to take care of it. So we can, we can entrust them. That frees us to love and to, to respond and to lay down our lives. So knowledge of God's, God's perfect justice, unflinching justice that no one will escape, it frees us from having to fight back, to go on speaking and living courageously and compassionately in the midst of opposition. And then that brings us to fifth. God provides His enablement. He provides His enablement to continue on with Christ proclaiming courage. I'm just going to have to be brief here. He says, verse 29, Take note of their threats and grant to your servants. What? Traveling mercies. Safety. New, new elected officials who are being more fair towards us. No. To continue to speak your word with all boldness. And they're asking for this grace to, to keep speaking the word boldly while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. While you, God, continue to work these incredible miracles and healings like the lame man being healed and, and these, these they give these opportunities to preach the saving power of Jesus Christ. While you do this, enable us to keep speaking your word with boldness. This is, what, this is the crux of their prayer. Lord, we need boldness, and we don't have it. Would you grant that, Lord? Would you grant that? This isn't recklessness, brothers and sisters. I know we would, we would probably rebuke them for this. Go away. Let things quiet down. These are just people who've been transformed by the resurrection power of Christ. These are not naturally courageous people either. Remember, Peter's coward facing these threats before from these same people. But after the resurrection, after the coming of the Spirit, there's this boldness that he longs for and that he knows isn't, 
isn't natural to him, but God is God has given it to him before and he's asking for it again. They're asking for it. And again, it's boldness that got them in trouble in the first place. We're back in chapter 4, verse 13. That's what the religious authority said. These, the boldness of these guys. It's boldness that got them in trouble. And so they're praying for boldness, which is something that they've already demonstrated. Why would they be doing that? Well, I think they understood. Yesterday's grace won't work for today's challenges. Thank God for yesterday's grace. He, he enabled us. He filled us with the Spirit to be bold yesterday when we testified before the Sanhedrin. But we need your fresh grace today, Lord. Enable us, grant us to continue speaking the word with boldness. They didn't presume upon yesterday's grace. We need, we need your help every day, God. And Paul understood this. He, he begged the, the Ephesian believers to pray for him. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. Oh, that words would be given to him and opening my mouth boldly. Oh, Paul, he's the bold one, right? But he's begging, please. I, I lack this. I need this from God. I need to be able to speak boldly. I'm an ambassador in chains and I want to declare boldly as I ought to speak. We need his enablement. Desperately. Now again, I know Eric touched on this last week and I have a lot more in my notes here about this. And we have kind of distorted views. One, we, we, we live in a very timid culture, so we need to be reminded of, of what courage and boldness looks like, but there are also distortions of boldness and courage. And so this is not bravado, chest pounding, you know, being the aggressive, uh, scrappy. That's not necessarily the picture of what boldness is. It's, that's not it. That's not what we're talking about. But, but, but there, are, there are knockoffs of boldness. But, but this humble, patient, enduring, joyful, trusting, trusting God, trusting His Word, courage that evidences the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. That's what we're talking about. And Now again, most of us, we're kind of beginners, novices when it comes to boldness. Even the thought of boldness probably scares some of us a little bit. What this would mean in my life if I really prayed this way and the Lord enabled me to speak the Word with boldness. I mean, just, just a few ideas and then we're going to wrap it up here. What this might mean for us, boldness for beginners like me. It's saying something when saying nothing would be easier. We just start there. We've all been in those conversations probably this week when we had, I, probably the Spirit was prompting us. Like, here's an opportunity, here's an open door to say something, to point to Christ. And it is easier to let the conversation kind of naturally change subjects, to let that go by. And, and so maybe boldness is simply saying something when saying nothing would be easier. Second, maybe taking advantage of opportunities when they present themselves, when God presents them. Offering to pray for somebody who's going through a difficulty. That's, maybe that's boldness. Asking questions of people to learn things they really care about and looking for those opportunities to point to Christ. Offering to share your own story. Talking about what's most important in your own life. Giving God credit for any good in your life. and Expressing your trust in God through the hard things in life. Maybe it's intentionally making opportunities, getting to know your neighbors, reaching out, having people over in your home, hospitality, meals, inviting a coworker to lunch. It's getting involved in ministry and mission and you know, becoming part of the Good News Club and serving at the Pregnancy Care Center, Gilgal, and just these kind of ministries. Maybe that's a way that you can grow in boldness. Maybe it's just right now asking God for it. 
Start there. Maybe the first bold action toward boldness is asking him for it. Well, all right. And, and, and so the passage ends with God interrupting their prayer meeting. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. I just say, I wouldn't mind if God interrupted our prayer meetings like this when we meet on Sunday nights. This is, this is great. And, and so he, what he's providing here is his presence. He's shaking the building as a sign to say he's with them. He hears them. He's present. He's powerful. And, and also in response to their prayer, he doesn't just do something around them, shaking the building. He does something in them and for them. Verse 31 goes on. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. He provides a spirit who fills us in these fresh ways for renewed resolve. This fresh filling, that's the idea of this. It happens over and over again. We'll see this throughout Acts. We've seen it already in the previous last week or the week before as Peter's filled with the Spirit and speaks this word courageously before these people. Spirit, Spirit controls us. We, he, he, he fills us. Peter and John Listen, they who had seen the resurrected Jesus, they needed these, these over and over fillings of the Holy Spirit. They needed it. Do you think you and I might need it too? Nor do you think, no, I'm good. I got salvation. I got knowledge. I got stuff. I'm, I'm skilled. I, got, I know how to talk to people. I know, I know what to do. Peter and John said, we desperately need the Holy Spirit. We can do nothing apart from you, God. We are hopeless without you. These apostles that lived with Jesus for those three years and they, they, they had witnessed His resurrection. They had walked with Jesus over for all that time. But I'm sure you and I are fine without it. No, we, we need to be consciously aware of how desperate we need the Spirit's work. Fill us, Lord. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Listen, brothers and sisters, we will face opposition. That's inevitable. Threats will come. We may not face the sword like they did in the early church. They, the threats may be different. But Jesus promised if they persecuted him, they're going to persecute you. But we're not left without help. And it's not, you know, you guys can handle this. Toughen up. Just man up. No, we, we have by God's grace, may our response be when trouble comes, when hostility comes, when threats start flying, that we face it through what God provides. We, 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 we say, Lord, you've provided everything I need. I look to you. That's the only way we're going to continue on in boldness, speaking the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you, we know there are versions, Lord. We ask you to take note of the threats. Take note of the threats that are leveled against your people and against your cause. Not just in our own context, in our own culture, and there are many, but around the world, brothers and sisters facing intense opposition. And we ask, Lord, and we beg you, we plead with you that you would grant us, grant your servants to speak your word Continue speaking your word with boldness, no matter the cost. Lord, help us to, to lay hold of all that you provided so that we can continue speaking courageously for you in the midst of, of, of opposition. That we would have zero self-confidence, but that we would 
have full confidence in you, desperation for you and all that you provide, no matter what comes. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.